and welcome to the Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the CEO of Law in Sport. I hope you're doing really well and you're having a great day wherever you are in the world. On today's show, I'm delighted to welcome some special guests, uh, Sohil Ali and Gupriet Dura, who are both partners at DLA Piper. Now, this podcast actually came about because um, they had come together to do a a discussion on LinkedIn to talk about their experience growing up, playing cricket, working in the legal sector. And it was stemmed from um, the Asim Rafiq case, who had faced issues of racism and bullying at Yorkshire County Cricket Club. It's been well documented. And if you haven't, you're going to know about, if you don't know about this, you're going to find out more during this uh, fantastic podcast. And we did record the video for this. So if you want to go to our YouTube channel, you can go there and check that out. Or you can go to lawinsport.com to our podcast page. And as well, we have um, a written transcript of the um, interview as well. Now, not only do we cover the issues that um, both of our guests have faced themselves, we also talk about obviously the wider context in terms of sport, but particularly focusing on cricket, as well as, you know, importantly, look for solutions uh, to some of the problems that, that we're addressing in the podcast. And I'm also delighted to say that I'm co-hosting this one with my great colleague, Manan Agarwal, who is an editor for Law in Sport. And many of you would have heard him before either at our conference um, or on previous podcasts. Other than that, wherever you are in the world, I hope you enjoy the show. And remember, for all the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport, go to lawinsport.com. And obviously, you can follow us on all the channels. And other than that, I hope you enjoy the show. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, I hope you're well. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Sean Cottrell. I'm joined today by my colleague, Manan Agarel, um, who's the editor of Law in Sport. For those who don't know, I'm Law in Sport CEO. We've got a fantastic discussion for you today about something which is uh, and in very important topic and one that I think is going to continue to be so over the coming months and years. Many of you will know uh, in 2020, the cricketer um, Azim Rafiq made ac- accusations of racism and bullying at Yorkshire County Cricket Club. It led to him giving a very emotional um, and distressing um, statement, a witness account uh, uh, to the Digital Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee in the British Parliament. There's an ongoing investigation uh, by the English, so England and Wales Cricket Board, the ECB, and it led to a number of resignations from Yorkshire County Cricket Club. I'm delighted to welcome two people who, following that case, jumped onto LinkedIn and did a wonderful discussion around what the case meant both for them personally on their own shared experiences of working both in the legal sector and in sport but also what i mean more broadly for cricket and, and sport so i'm delighted um to welcome our two guests today we have zohal ali who is i might add also an editorial board member but more importantly of law and sport but more importantly he's a partner at dla he is um a litigation arbitration lawyer he advises premium banking and corporate clients. He works for many sports organisations. He's active for a range of FTSE 100 clients. Um, and he's also a steering member of the firm's race and ethnicity network, Mosaic, and co-leads the firm's client engagement on diversity inclusion. Also, we're delighted to welcome Gopri Dura, who is a partner at DLA also. He practices, his practice includes a wide range of work 
um, including uh, workplace restructuring, senior executive issues, investigation, diversity, inclusion, collective employment issues, and employment disputes more broadly. His experience of protecting businesses against unlawful competition and misuse of confidential information by employees. So as you can tell, he's got a rich HR employment law uh, background. And so, um, and again, has acted for both many large corporates as well as a number of sports organizations. Um, Manan, uh, would you like to start us off with the first questions for our wonderful guests? Thanks a lot, Sean. Uh, the recent issue surrounding the discrimination faced by Azim Rafiq at the Yorkshire Cricket Club has made a lot of waves across the sporting world as well as outside. Uh, but it's an issue that's close and personal for both of you. Can you explain why? Gurpreet, uh, would you want to go first? Yeah, sure. Happy to go first, Manan. And, and thank you, Sean, for that introduction. It's, it's great to be with you guys uh, uh, having this, uh, this conversation uh, today. So uh, I guess for me, uh, the Azim Rafiq uh, account was relatable for, for two key reasons. First of all, I played cricket recreationally um, when I was young and, and still play some cricket now. And I experienced some of the, the racism that uh, Azim referred to in his testimony, you know, whether that's being called the P word, uh, being referred to, to terms like uh, a curry muncher or being told to go back to my own country. Uh, these these were common occurrences when playing cricket, um, certainly in my in my younger days. Uh, and um, it was some of those those shared experiences that I could relate to, and 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 that's why it was was really powerful. And I think then the, the second reason uh, why it was so relatable was it was because it was the first time that that I've really heard anybody speak out so openly about these issues and the fact that it was from someone within the game who had played at a high professional level i think um was was really groundbreaking it was raw it was unfiltered it was authentic uh, and just from a personal perspective you know i got used to to looking the other way uh when i was younger when you 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 heard the heard these kind of things being said uh, when you're a, a minority in the group that's often what what happens you're so desperate um to fit in that you don't call out bad behavior so easily you you really suck it up and i think that's ingrained in in us often as as second generation um uh, immigrants and and our parents who came to this country as, as first generation who would often say things like look you have to accept that in this country you are going to be treated differently because of how you look and, and where you come from and to get on in Britain, you have to accept that, keep your head down, work hard, and eventually opportunities will come your way. Now, that may have been, I think, uh, a common narrative in the 1990s, but I don't think it's acceptable in, in 2022. Uh, and I think we only create a level playing field if people like uh, Azim are prepared to, to call out prejudice in, in whatever form it, it takes. Uh, what, what about you, Sahel? Uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks very much, Gilbert, and, and and thank you, Sean and Manan, uh, for for having us both here. Um, I echo a lot of what you said uh, there, Gilbert. But I, but but as I said on my LinkedIn video um, when we did this uh, a few weeks ago, my experience growing up was perhaps a little bit different uh, to yours in in the sense that I went to a private school from the age of eight, and then I went on, went on and studied at Oxford, and. I had the benefit of uh, playing cricket at a you know really good level with first class facilities and you know county standard pitches and really nice lunches and teas and you know even benefited with electronic scoreboards. Uh, and when I did play 
club cricket uh, in Yorkshire. It was in the Yorkshire Central League, um, where the standard was also really good. And that's where the Yorkshire players would be picked up from. And for a long time, I just assumed that's how cricket was played. Um, and everyone had access to the same facilities. Um, but the discord for me struck me when I started playing local club cricket for my uh, cousin after I came back from university. And he asked me one day to, to come and play for his local club. Uh, and this was a league. It was called the Guy the Azam League. And it was Guy the Azam League is, is named after the founder of Pakistan. And it had been set up by the Asian community in response to the fact that, A, um, for the earliest generation that came here, so my parents' generation, they could never play for Yorkshire as they weren't born in the county. But also they felt that they didn't quite belong uh, and they felt slight, slightly out of place. So they had a real love for the game, um, you know, the, that passion coming from the subcontinent. But they also came from the poorer socioeconomic backgrounds and English wasn't necessarily their first language. Uh, they didn't drink. Um, they didn't necessarily get the banter. And, and it's very difficult when you don't, you know, when you're when you don't speak English properly to go into that sort of environment. Uh, and so what they did was, you know, they decided to do their own thing and they decided to create their own league. Uh, and that was what I saw. But naturally, with that, there was a complete lack of funding there. Uh, and and often I'd turn up to play for cricket at these grounds, and there was, you know, there was no changing room. You'd have to go and find some trees to go and get change behind. Yeah, or, or you'd have lunch or tea sat on the pitch itself, or or the pitches were uncovered and the grass would be completely overgrown. And that really opened my eyes, having having gone through private school, Oxford, local club cricket, then playing cricket at this standard. And the standard was good. The players were good. But, you know, watching the facilities. Uh, and when I initially used to complain, you know, during those games about the wickets or, you know, often when I'd got a, a first baller, when a good ball hadn't got past my ankle, um, I was just told to get on with it. Uh, and, and that's why I could resonate a lot with what Azim said in terms of the lack of equity. Um, and, and the cultural differences that you know have left a lot of people feeling over the years, especially from ethnic minority communities, feeling quite dis disenfranchised or ostracised from the mainstream uh, and, and that they didn't belong. Uh, uh, can I ask something? What, what, as someone who didn't really play cricket, because I come from a lower career background in particular, but the, uh, um, it was... You know, it was an expensive game to play, still is an expensive game to play, as I think there were some reports this week about, I think if you're in, you know, under 16s or under, I think it was, or something like that, it's like £500 just for the, the right to play if you get called up to play for England right? or in that in that elite pathway. And there's some parents and other cricketers saying that, that seems unjust. And obviously in this country, there is the, the association between social economic status and the history of, um, you know, the structural barriers that are put in. To, particularly from people from different um, ethnic backgrounds, as uh, so second generation immigrants, etc., who are put into certain you know areas and the, the you know, uh, economic barriers and educational barriers were put up. The one thing of being on the outside that struck me is though that, that cricket's always got this reputation of being this gentleman's game, and the thing that I found fascinating and similar to a degree to law with some of the discussions following the Black Lives Matter movement is that I call it like the veil of professionalism allows prejudice to thrive. And it seemed to me that as, as Gregory, you were saying in terms of, you know, just get on with it, you know, people are saying this, turn the blind eye. To what degree do you think that the sort of cultural aspect of cricket in the sense that is this meant to be perceived as a gentleman's game didn't really allow there to be any sort of discussion around, you know, how bad that situation was because of someone on the outside of cricket listening to Seam's account. It was horrific to live, and I think mean, everyone sort of, you know, record, well, most of the 
right-minded people recognize that to be the case but it was just astonishing to me that even in recent times that wasn't that was still tolerated and the, and and i wondered to what degree you thought the culture of cricket allowed that to to happen sure i have to say that sean i think it's a, it's a really good point i mean i i guess when you look at uh this the game specifically and you look at how you know it's it's evolved in this country over the last sort of you know 50 years or so it has been a game that unlike football for example which i think is quite inclusive from a social demographic uh, demographic perspective because you've got you know all sorts of kids from all sorts of backgrounds you see kicking a ball and and football is just such a natural sport for them to to get involved in and there's no you know cost barriers necessarily involved to, to certainly at the entry level and, and, and in the youth ranks whereas cricket i think naturally has been the, the domain historically of people from so higher social economic groups and and often when you look at people who make it in the in the professional ranks uh, a, a disproportionate number of them frankly come from a public school background um, and come from parts of the country where you know you have you know more more affluence and and people who are and parents who are, are are actually pushing their kids and and who are prepared to to invest that cost to to get their kids involved and i think certainly when you from an outsider's perspective looking in i i relate to what you say in terms of it looks as if it's you know these, these are just it's just a pleasant sport to play and there's no you know undertones that that suggest that there's anything untoward happening behind the scenes but i think it has always had this image of being quite an exclusive club certainly uh, you know at, at, at elite level and that's why i think it's it is really difficult for people from different backgrounds to, to when they're there to feel that they are included and to feel that they are part of that group because their experiences growing up are almost alien compared to 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 the core group that's already there uh, whether that's you know the schools they're educated in whether where that's where, where they played cricket when they were younger uh, in terms of their you know their, their communities they come from and it's it's just very very different and i think it's it's something that um often gets overlooked and so that you're saying then that that compounds the issue essentially so you now you have this feeling of, of of exclusivity rather than exclusivity and therefore when something already does happen there's this kind of you know i'm definitely not in the position to speak up and say something which makes i think rafiq's you know his courage to speak up even you know you know more more impressive um and admirable um so you think that is the issue this, this is a, this is just fascinating to see because um, that is as, as you know our community of sports lawyers or people interested in this area or sports administrators thinking about that culture they're creating is you know and making sure that you're not you know making it more difficult i know we'll come on to some of the questions that manan's got yeah no I, I, absolutely i think if you look at it from the perspective of let's say a, you know a young black uh, cricketer or a young asian cricketer coming into a, a dressing room at a, a club or a, or a county at, uh, with, within their academies for example and if you're the only black kid or the only asian kid in that setup out of a squad of 15 20 people automatically you know that you're different um because you look different and you might talk different uh, and then when you're in that environment you're 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 so desperate to fit in and to conform to what's expected of you within that group that often you're 
you're quite reluctant to be authentic and actually talk about your differences and talk about your background and the fact that it's different to the people in that in that room because you're concerned about how that will be perceived and nobody wants to be an outsider in a group right and that's why when then the the core group and this is that the kind of the, the cheap mentality sometimes where you know people can be fast and loose with their language people you know can you know the safety in numbers and actually you know and and i think again within you know when you look at think about teenagers yeah they can be quite cruel and mean sometimes and actually um if that is allowed to to happen uh with the coaching staff there and everybody else there and they 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 don't step in and actually uh make a a positive effort to create an inclusive environment and you can see how outsiders coming into that group uh, are, are going to feel left out and then that is like a self-fulfilling prophecy then and things can escalate where things get said and actually people then you know who are subject to those comments will often turn the other other way because they, they don't want to be pushed to one side and they're they're keen to progress and get on and 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 actually you create this vicious cycle sometimes which i think is, is probably a reflection what happened with with azim in terms of things get said and and he didn't want to call that call it out because he was concerned about the ramifications it had for his career and he had nobody in that environment who was actually stepping up and showing leadership to say this is what we expect and and what will be interesting i think is is with the ecb's review of the dressing room culture which um which is one one specific point they're looking into as part of the the uh i think their 10-point plan uh it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that i don't know if you have, have any observations on that as well Sahel. Uh, no, the, the only thing I was, I was just going back to Sean's point, the only couple of points I'd, I'd add is to say that I, I think I think you're absolutely right that historically cricket has been seen as almost the preserve of the, the public school educated um, children. And therefore, um, you know, those people I was very, you know, very lucky and fortunate to have gone to a private school and therefore had the benefit of playing cricket and being coached. Uh, but there were lots of inner city schools in Bradford for example, where cricket was just not an option. You didn't play cricket. The sport was football, for example, uh, whereas in our school, football wasn't played. It was rugby and cricket. Uh, and that just sort of, you know, it was, um, to me, it just demonstrated the divide. The other thing that I noticed also uh, when I was growing up was I benefited hugely from coaching in cricket. Uh, and what that meant was I looked like a, you know, like a proper player. So people would always say to me that in terms of the way I bat, my, you know, they used to describe me as Mike Atherton, which actually I think was a, um, a, 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 was a criticism in the sense that I was very, you know, textbook, perhaps couldn't get the ball off the square. Uh, but um, but there were other cricketers, you know, from Asian backgrounds who had learned to play cricket on the streets. And there's, you know, the, the image that I just remember when you go through inner city Bradford was just people getting those milk crates and putting them on top of each other and that was your wicket or getting a wheelie bin and that would be your wicket and learning to play cricket on the cobbled streets and a lot of those guys were a lot more talented than i was or other people who'd been to private school but they didn't look like cricketers because they hadn't been coached to bat in a certain way or bowl in a certain way and what that meant was you know there were a lot of uh, criticisms about the people the way people bowled for example you know because their action wasn't as smooth as it might have been and all it did was exacerbate the problem, made it more difficult for them. And you know, it led to a loss of quite a lot of talent, I think. But I think, and I think we'll probably come on to this, I think the direction of travel in recent years has got better for various reasons. Uh, and I'm confident that um, with a lot of funding, especially through you know, TV rights and commercial rights, the game has put a lot more into it and to try and make it more accessible. Um, but 
in years gone by, I think the the lack of accessibility, the lack of coaching, uh, did did really inhibit a lot of people from entering into the to the game. Com- completely agree with you there. Before moving on to the question, the point that you touched upon on technique of players who don't have the right coaching, which was usually overlooked earlier. I hope that's changing now because I'm I'm from India and I'm an Indian fan. And we have now players coming across that we had MS Dhoni who had a very unorthodox batting style. And we have a player called Jasmeet Bumra, who's probably one of the best bowlers in the world, who has a very unorthodox bowling style. So I think that's slowly starting to change and starting to inspire more younger kids to be just be themselves. Now, you've already touched upon the issue of banter earlier. Uh, previously in the IPL, there was an issue where Darren Sammy, who's the who was the ex uh, West Indies captain as well, uh, he had highlighted that he had been called a derogatory term by his teammates in the IPL, but didn't know that that term actually carried racist connotations and thought it was just banter. So where does the banter, uh, where does the line actually lie between banter and abuse, and how do you educate players about the same? Uh, Gurpreet? Yeah, sure. Happy happy to take that. Um... Uh, Manin, I, I think this is one of the hardest things for all organisations, whether um, sports teams, uh, clubs, or, or you know, people across all sectors, to to try and get right, and, and particularly to, to police properly. Um, what what terms and language are acceptable can be very fluid, and, and different cultures have different views on this too. Uh, and in my experience, as as an employment lawyer in in 20 years of, of handling employment litigation, uh, not once has the defense of banter succeeded before uh, a judge in, in an employment tribunal. So legally, banter is not a defense. We we know that. Um, so then I think it comes down to, to education. I mean, I always encourage clients to, to train their staff on unacceptable language and to think about having things like an inclusive language guide that's bespoke for your organization that everybody endorses and is and is clear on i think fundamentally it's it's really about getting to know the people that you work with your your colleagues and your teammates uh, what what is their background what are their uh, beliefs and values and and what's socially acceptable uh, to them and i think by doing that and investing that time in getting to know uh, people who are different to you who do come from different backgrounds you're you're less likely to make offensive comments in the first place uh, i think and 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 if you do then your colleagues are probably going to be, be more forgiving to you if you've taken the time um to get to know them because people do make mistakes uh, and that's that's human nature but i think you know you're you're going to get a more uh, forgiving uh, reception if you 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 you've shown that you 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 are interested in people and their background and and can relate to their experiences, um, and again I I've turned to the, the the review on dressing room culture which the ECB is doing because I think that's where a lot of these problems surface and it will be interesting to see what recommendations come out um, come out of that. And and what to what extent do you think these independent investigations and then reports are are, are effective? Obviously because there was an independent report uh, <laughs> uh, initially um, that was carried out. And then obviously we've got ongoing ones at the moment. How do you see them, them sort of fitting in? And, you know, are they are they really as impactful as they could or should be? I, I think they, they can only be truly impactful, Sean, if actually there's 
investment in the implementation and a commitment to the uh, to the implementation of whatever recommendations come out of these independent reports. Clearly, it's important that you get to the root of the issues and to do that properly, you need skilled investigators who are impartial, who can examine the evidence in a balanced way and uh, provide thoughtful uh, conclusions from a, a wide body of, of evidence. Uh, but in the end, they're just words on a page. And what you, you really need to do to take the next step uh, with any kind of investigation process or report is, is actually think about practically how can we ingrain this within the the clubs that this applies to uh, and and it's not just you know directing people and saying look there's a report you need to go away and read it what you need to do is bring it to life practically and actually have that investment in educating people through training programs through awareness raising and and check people's understanding and and then you know you you take that away for your organization and and bespoke that to to what works uh, best for you I'll just add to that, Gurpri, um, that um, it's absolutely, I think I think independent investigations have a, a really important role and a really important place. Um, I think what's really important is not only that the allegations in the investigation are being properly investigated, but they are seen to be being properly investigated, in, investigated and, uh, and there has to be no perception from the outside that there's any bias or any affiliation to any of the parties and I, and I speak as a as a litigator um and I know that what's vital to give uh, the process confidence um the findings and ultimately for any recommendations is to have that impartiality so for example I'd never put uh, an expert into a witness box who I thought could be tainted in some way or his credibility could be attacked in cross examination um, so, you know, when we appoint independent experts on our litigation matters, we look carefully through that CV. Um, we try and make sure that the individual putting forward is is genuinely, but also optically independent. Um, and I think that's the key here. And therefore, with an investigation panel, it's really important to give really careful consideration to the selection. So who's appointing them? What's their expertise? Is there a balance in the skill set, in the gender, in the diversity of that makeup? And, and also, crucially, will that panel be given full and unfettered access to an information and cooperation? Or are they going to be given sort of a limited amount of uh, information? And I think if done properly, uh, these independent investigation panels can be really effective, particularly in identifying and then seeking to resolve systemic issues you know, within organisations, which the organisation either may be completely oblivious to or maybe reluctant to to sort of overcome and take steps. And what would you say are some of the, I guess, <laughs> so done well, they're really good. Um, what are some of the things that need to be avoided then in terms of, um, uh, you know, where, where have some of these things gone wrong in the past where they haven't necessarily been as effective as they could be? Yeah, without trying to comment on any particular specific case, I think if there is criticism of investigations, it's when there's a perception that, uh the the independent investigation has either been appointed by someone who in the past has been affiliated with an organization and therefore is less likely to be critical or you know you're less likely um to be critical of uh you know the hand that feeds you uh and so 
ensuring, and, and it might be that the investigation and the recommendation themselves were completely independent and impartial and were the right ones, but that's where people haven't had confidence in the process and the system. And that's where I think it comes back to who's appointing them. And if you actually are one step removed and then saying, well, actually, not only they are independent, but there's a perception from the outside that the recommendations, if they are not found to be in the favour of one party or another, there's likely to be an uproar. And that's where I think, you know, we, without naming any examples, there have in the past been criticisms of certain investigations where people have then ultimately said, actually, I don't like, you know, they were, of course, they were always going to be biased because they've had connections with them in the past. And, and that's where I think those are the obvious pitfalls you want to avoid. Thank you. Um, so, Hale, um, now, do you think this entire issue is basically serves as a wake-up call for sporting organizations and workplaces generally to be creating more of an inclusive environment and culture as one of their main focus points? And if they don't focus on this, what do they really stand to lose now? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Uh, I, I think it, it, it you know, definitely is a, a, a wake-up wake call. We, we, we saw from the the whistleblowing hotline um, after the Azum Rafiq case um, in cricket, you know, thousands of people uh, came forward uh, to report issues of, of of racism, and you know, there's a real spotlight on this issue now, like there's never been before. Um, you know, Azim is is being seen and touted as a as a bit of a trailblazer. You know, someone who's made it easier for others to now come out and speak out. Um, so, you know, previously people might have thought these things. It's, it's not as if these issues have just arisen, but he's just made it easier for people to come out. And and that, therefore, serves as a warning sign, I think, for organisations uh, that these issues are not going to go away, but people feel now empowered uh, to come and speak out. And there's also just more generally, you know, as a, again, uh, speaking as a lawyer, there's a, there's a huge emphasis on ESG at the moment. Uh, it's the real buzzword. Uh, and in particular, the S uh, in uh, the ESG, which is you know, to do with you know, social issues, with diversity and inclusion. And and, and with this comes naturally uh, litigation risk. Uh, there comes uh, reputational risk for organisations, you know, either who don't seek to try and address these issues now or uh, learn from this and create inclusive workplace environments uh, and cultures. And, and I have to say, this is not an issue that's specific to cricket. It affects a whole range of other sports. I mean, football, we we, we, we know has a problem with racism. You know, we see that. You know, we saw that at the Euros, for example, after the after the final. Um, but, you know, across other sports as well. I, I, I think, you know, there are people who are talking about elitism within, for example, certain types of sports, golf uh, and tennis. Uh, it, it, you can see that it's a, it's a problem waiting to erupt. Um, and if the Yorkshire saga has taught us anything, um, it's the importance of being proactive rather than reactionary. So if you're in a certain sport, take a long, hard look at yourself rather than saying, actually, there have been no noises so far, because what you don't know is whether there is a a bubbling underlying sentiment which is ready to erupt. And it just takes one person to come out and there'll be a whole um, barrage of uh, people or or, or, of complaints or claims that will arise. So I think each of the sports probably need to take a long, hard look at themselves and see genuinely, do we have inclusive uh, workplace and environments or you know do we make it difficult for people from certain backgrounds social economic backgrounds are we a more elitist or privileged sort of sport in which case how can we break that down how can we make it more inclusive and and in my view that you know the answer to all of that starts by listening you know you can't look to resolve a problem until you've really listened and you've understood what the issue uh, and the question sorry manam 
No, I was just saying that that's that that point at the end that you said that the key over there for for the organization is to really listen uh, to what's what's being told to them. So, Gurpreet, uh, what do you think are the ideal steps that any organization or a sporting organization should take if they've received a complaint of discriminatory abuse from a member of their organization? Sure. So, I think there's a few critical uh, steps to to keep in mind at the outset when when any organization does receive a, a discriminatory uh, complaint so take it seriously i think that's the first thing um it's important that you recognize it for what it is uh, that doesn't mean you jump to any conclusions of course but you you recognize and appreciate that somebody making a complaint of discrimination on grounds of race or sex or another characteristic is a serious issue and you need to give it the time and attention it deserves. Um, have a clear policy and a roadmap in place for dealing with complaints. Hopefully you should already have an existing policy so everybody knows what the protocol is for dealing with it um, and that there's no no surprises and you're not making it up as you as you go along. Uh, but, but even if you don't have a clear policy in place for dealing with a, a complaint like that, then spend some time at the beginning um, working out exactly what the process should be, what the scope of the investigation should be, who should be appointed to investigate the com complaint. So Hell talked uh, about that earlier in terms of making sure that it, it has credibility, whether you handle it in-house or externally, you need to ensure that the person who's appointed, who will make, who will be making decisions, has the requisite skills, uh, independence and credibility to, to do that. Um, think about, how you are going to approach this in terms of what's the main purpose of this it's it's to get to the bottom of the facts and we as lawyers i think see this a lot in our in our practice whereby when um, organizations face these complaints often the default reaction is to get into into legal defense mode thinking about things like well what liability does this create for us potentially are we going to be sued for damages? Are we going to have to pay out compensation? Uh, how much of this can we keep under wraps in terms of confidentiality? How open can we be in our communications? Because we've got to think about legal privilege and, and who gets access to what information. And often you are distracted by all of these issues and lose sight of the fact that the most important thing here is to get to the bottom of the facts and understand very quickly what's happened what's been done or not done. Uh, and so you know what's in front of you and you can take appropriate action to to address it. And I think that's that's really, really important because frankly, if you don't get that bit right and you get distracted by all these other things, then the, the reputational impact of that uh, can be potentially catastrophic as we've seen in, in, in other examples where if you're not perceived to be dealing with it properly and if you're inward looking, focusing on how this uh, may look for you internally and and what um you know what uh what ramifications it has for the people involved actually you're going to do much more harm to the institution uh, as a whole by taking that approach potentially because the the brand and reputational damage that that, that you may suffer uh, from that is is something that can be very difficult to uh, recover from uh, and have you are there any i guess it could be difficult to come up with any examples, I guess, because not, like, most of it might be in private. But are there any examples of organisations that have done a, a really good job with 
addressing the points that you've raised and having good policies, procedures, um, you know, a really inclusive culture? Uh, I, th I think it's probably hard to comment on specific examples there, Sean, because uh, often the, the best investigations, for example, are the ones that you don't hear about. <laughs> uh, uh, and and so uh, I think it's 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 the ones where you know you fo you're focusing on the on the facts and you you avoid all of that outside noise um uh that 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 you know that they're the ones that that, that really um are, are going to be the best ones i mean outside of strictly the investigation process looking at a broader approach to to dni for example and the organizations that tend to do this best are the ones that make uh, diversity and inclusion a strategic priority and have leadership teams that take a, a genuine interest in it and embrace it, not just because of the benefits it brings. I mean, there's lots of hard data now on the benefits of having diverse and inclusive uh, workforces um, in terms of the uh, the performance benefits it, it gives you. So in a sporting context, for example, you know, if you if you scout talent in a more diverse way, rather than through traditional channels such as you know the academy system, then you're you're more likely to spot uh, and recruit hidden talent and get a competitive edge. Um, so I think that's that's clear from a performance perspective in terms of the, the benefits of of embracing this properly. Um, but I think also it's important that leadership teams do this wholeheartedly as well, not just because of the performance benefits and the business benefits of it, but actually believing wholeheartedly that it is the right thing to do as a responsible and progressive organization. And would you say then that's where, because from my side, we, we obviously cover a lot of these issues, something, you know, we've got a very inclusive organization, we could always do better, but we try our, our best across everything we do. One of the things that we talk about a lot is about the sort of box ticking exercises and where you can clearly see from the outside that there's they've got all the policies and procedures in place, but the um, as you were saying, it wasn't a really heartfelt, um, you know, embracing of those policies or implementation of those policies and procedures. And in which case, it, um, is that something you kind of see as well, where you, you know, people just get fixated on, oh, we need to get the policy in place, but really not embracing the the underlying purpose of that policy. Yeah, I, I absolutely. I mean, policies and procedures only get you so far. Um, to be honest, Sean, and I think in our experience, what's more important is how you bring those words on the page to life and how you can ingrain that within your organization, because actually having a, a diverse and inclusive outlook is something that needs to be pervasive across your whole organization for, for, for you to, to, to get this right and truly move the dial i think in this in this area so i think it's something that has to feed into your your recruitment um processes operationally reward leadership all these things that you look at within any organization uh there has to be a dna dni you know uh, element to to all of those things in, in order to 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 actually you know, be best in class in in this in this uh, in this space and finally, before I let her man answer a word, um, forgive me. Um, do you think that one of the, my observation is from all the work that we do in this arena is that um, even if you're not one of the sort of um, affected groups, let's say, from a, a diversity inclusion perspective, you still gain to benefit from just having a more 
caring, inclusive culture. So I think one of the, the it seems to me that one some of the challenges as um, you know, the, dealing with the sin for a free cave, the Black Lives Matter movement, etc., is that people just go, oh, this is only something uh, that benefits these people, as opposed, which is they should, you know, want to do anyway. But regardless of that, they they could also, even if they were just being selfish, there was, I, I, if they had best practice, which it seems like it just is, to have you know, open and transparent communication, care after individuals, care about their concerns, their well-being, etc. Everyone sounds. This sounds very, I guess, um, <laughs> very fluffy. But it, it seems to me though that everyone stands to benefit, not only just the people who are the part of the affected group. Yeah, that's absolutely right, uh, Sean. And, and we've seen that in the in the data because that demonstrates that actually the whole organisation is is behind this, takes it seriously, and that you know that will inevitably engender a more inclusive workplace if if people from underrepresented groups feel that they can be themselves they can be authentic they can share their experiences with their line managers or other senior management in their organization um, then you're going to get the best out of them frankly and um you know say oh you might want to say a few words about some of our initiatives around you know allies and reverse mentoring for example which i think have of have, have really moved the dial for our organization yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it, it comes back to your point, Gurpreet, um, about leadership. And I think if, if leadership buy into this, it, it sets the tone. And that's really important. C coming back to a sporting uh, context, um, Sean, I think you were asking for uh, some examples. And I think it's difficult uh, to, to give any real concrete example, partly for the reasons that Gurpreet uh, said, you never hear about best practice as, as, as lawyers or litigators you always end up hearing about things when they go wrong i'm a i'm, I'm a liverpool football fan and so you know i follow the club very closely and you see when you know a leader like jürgen klopp who is really highly regarded and speaks so effusively and very inclusively and he talks about you know the, the diversity within the the dressing room and embraces it it sends a very strong message and in terms of the tangible benefits i think those tangible benefits, if I've read some of the statistics in, in Liverpool, uh, can be felt throughout the city. So, for example, there was a, you know, uh, uh, there was a, there were questions being raised as to whether Mohamed Salah would play in that Champions League final and and be fasting uh, because it was Ramadan. This is the the one where they lost against Real Madrid, and uh, yeah, a lot of people were thinking, well, don't fast because it might impact on your performance. And Jurgen Klopp came out and said, it's his choice. If he wants to fast, he will fast. But we'll, he'll play, but it's his decision. Rather than trying to say to someone, well, look, the game is more important than your faith or your culture or your background. Um, and when you look at the statistics, I, I mean, I was, I was reading the other day, they said that since Salah came to the club, race hate in the city has fallen by a staggering statistic. I mean, it was more than sort of, it was almost like 50% race hate crimes have fallen. And so that comes from leadership at the top, where you set the tone, you create that culture, you embrace people from different backgrounds, uh, and then actually, you know, you hear some of the, uh, the the chance and the and 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 the and the love and affection that people feel for people like Salah and Mane and and other players from different backgrounds. That I think is the best way to deliver inclusivity by 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 having people there and by embracing it. I think it's a fantastic point and a you know, huge fan of how Jurgen Klopp conducts himself in terms of you know the recent stuff he's been doing on sort of uh, 
homophobia and everything else. And yeah, again, it's a brilliant, you know, you just see stuff and it's, it seems very heartfelt as well. And to the point that Gertrude was mentioned about, yeah, people, they're yeah, really buying into it. Um, yeah, I think that's a, a really, really good example. And those statistics are actually, I wasn't aware of that. Absolutely fascinating. Um, so hopefully we see more of that. That would be wonderful. Um, Manan. Yeah. Uh, going back to where we started from now, you both are now leading lawyers in your respective sectors. So now how do you look back on the discrimination that you faced earlier in your life? And do you think things are now beginning to change? Um, so Hill, do you want to take it up or repeat? Yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, unfortunately, I don't get the chance to play uh, as much uh, cricket as I'd like to um, with a young family, but it's, it's the odd game here and there these days for me. But um, my sense is, I, as I sort of touched upon earlier, that clearly things are better than they were, um, you know, particularly since the 80s and 90s. I mean, I think there's still uh, a long way to go for the game, as shown by you know, recent experiences of Azim Rafiq and others. Um, but, you know, you can go to most sporting clubs and organizations these days and for example i go to yorkshire and they have a dedicated area to to pray for example so you can go and use the washrooms you can go and, and make your prayers you know they will serve halal food for example that's not something that you would have had uh or would have been able to do 20 years ago so i think the direction of travel is good the point we were making about funding as well i think is is important because there's more funding available to help people from slightly uh underprivileged backgrounds to help them get into the sport again there were there weren't those same facilities or funding uh, available uh, 20 30 years ago so my you know my kids who were you know got a couple of young girls who, who actually play cricket and take benefit of uh, the ecb funding i think also most sporting organizations now also have dedicated dni teams so they understand the issues and that and that and that very much helps but i think also it's it's uh, it's um, there's been an, uh, a, a general organic uh, maturity and growth as well. I mean, w when my parents, for example, came to this country in the 1970s, they spoke very limited English, um, and so naturally, you know, the, and the culture was totally alien to them. Uh, yet, you know, my father had a love for the game. I remember him when he went to university, he went to Sussex because Imran Khan was the overseas player, and he wanted to go and watch him play at Hove. Um, so there was that natural love that they had for the game, but they couldn't. What they couldn't do was because they didn't speak English fluently, because they didn't get the the dressing room banter. It was very difficult for them. Now our generation is different. Uh, I mean, I've been born and raised here. I think I speak English okay, um, and that naturally makes it a lot easier for me to go into a dressing room to fit in to have banter, whereas it would have been a lot difficult for people of of a different era and different generation. And I think also there's been a real um, concerted effort uh, to, to make you know the game much more accessible, and 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 so now you're not necessarily reliant just on recruiting from public schools or private schools. Um, you know, you're seeing more children. You, you know, if you just look at you know, the, the children that are entering into the, the 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 county game, for example, you know they come from different diverse backgrounds. So that's that's all positive. So I think there's a, a lot of work, a lot of hard work still to be done, but the direction of travel I think is positive. But um, you know, as I said earlier, I think there are certain sports that still have a long way to go. So some sports are slightly more advanced in tackling those issues. Other sports, are, you know, when I look at them, I think there's you know, there's a problem brewing and that they have a long way to go. Yeah, I agree with all of that, um, Sahel. And I, I think, you know, sport is often a reflection of society. And clearly, 
we have made lots of progress, certainly since when Sahel and I were, were kids um, a very long time ago. And I think what's what's refreshing is that I think there is a move towards understanding that actually you know, celebrate the fact that you are different and from a different background rather than that being something to be embarrassed about or to hide or suppress. And I've certainly seen that. Um, and, and how that can be a force for good. Certainly, and we, we even look at our sector uh, legal, in the legal profession, where historically, again, it's been certainly within a commercial law setting, it's been uh, quite, you know, elitist. It's been the domain of, of white males, and it's got that stuffy elitist culture. And I think that it's taken time. You know, when I look at my journey of the last 20 years from when I started in the firm uh, to now, uh, I think that, you know, nowadays we are. And we encourage all of our you know, young graduates coming through the system to come in and be their authentic selves at work, celebrate their differences, talk about their backgrounds. And, and you know, it's, it's been heartening to see that, you know, our, our peers now are, are welcoming that and, and having ally networks in place uh, is something that, that is really important to, to bring, that, um, bring that to the fore. I think you raised such a great point there because one of the things that we talk about all the time from law and sports perspective is the lack of diversity in sports law, obviously, um, and it's a it's a huge problem uh, globally. There's still a, a significantly overrepresentation uh, from white males, including myself, <laughs> um, but from uh, certain backgrounds as well. To what degree, though, do you think law or lawyers working in the sports sector could learn from some of these cases, for example? One of the things you talked about was uh, Soho in particular was about language and access you know, to language. One of the things that I've always found as a principle of rule of law, everyone's able to understand the rules and regulations that govern their behaviour. And I think sometimes as a community, the legal profession is not great with um, you know, having inclusive use of language. I know it's important to be very specific and precise, um, but likewise, you know, Lord Wolf did a report, I think, back in 1998, where he said, I think it was 98 or early 2000s where he said uh yeah we should not use latin anymore across the profession because it's prohibitive because only people from certain backgrounds are able to know they're able to get ed latin education and um, what you know and I, I know you haven't had any sort of prep on this but no doubt you've given it quite a lot of thought given your personal experiences and the work that you do within the firm what are your thoughts in terms of what can the legal profession take on board because I've, we've seen from a sports law perspective in particular there's been a lot of advice dished out to sports organizations and you know from our side as a neutral let's say we look at it and think hmm, hold on some of these organizations could probably take some of their own medicine um. <laughs> yeah I, th I think it's a, it's, it's a very good point and you know lawyers uh you know i'm speaking very generic terms obviously with the exception of sahel and i um are not great at um, actually breaking things down in a way that people can truly understand and and give it practical application clearly in things like legal legal contracts you need to be very precise in your wording and legalistic because they're the things that get poured over by judges and lawyers for the benefit of hindsight and so it's really important that that you you get it right in those contracts but when you're talking about things like guidance policies things that sporting organizations need to take away share with their members uh, particularly members who are uh, where english is not their first language they need to be given the tools to to actually understand at a basic level what's expected of them in terms of their behavior their, their, their conduct their performance and and i think that 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 we are probably missing a trick as far as that's concerned what what do you think Sahel? 
Yeah, absolutely. Sean, it's a great point. And I think that there is a, a need for the profession generally to sort of remove that, you know, uh, uh, that impression of stuffiness um, and, and the fact that, you know, people and lawyers need to look a certain way and speak a certain way. What we're finding is our, our clients are demanding us to be much more commercial and practical. And actually, if lawyers don't move with the times, they'll get left behind because there'll be other innovative uh, lawyers who will come along with you know, practices who will offer that service which clients are yearning for. So I think it's absolutely imperative that lawyers actually um, you know, move with the times and recognise that there is a way of communicating um, with, with their clients and providing advice in a clear, practical commercial manner that that is what clients are looking for and, and it has to be provided uh, one thing i'm just on a personal note when i was promoted to partner um a lot of people on on social media linkedin and and various other platforms approached me and and one of the things that they i was really touched by was the fact that they said that you know you you sound like me you seem normal you've come from a very similar background to me um, and that's very inspiring and I was having a conversation with someone literally a couple of days ago uh, who said that, you know, it's it's nice and refreshing to see someone who's a partner in a global law firm, but doesn't necessarily, um, you know, have all of the, you know, the, 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 the normal association of what a partner should look like or the way he should behave and act. You know, you guys look normal. Um, and that, I think, is really important from a diversity and inclusion perspective, that people can be themselves and that people find, you know, that. Yeah, he comes from the same background as me. You know, he looks like me, and actually, he's still succeeding and thriving in that profession. And if we do that, we'll make the profession more accessible. Because part of the problem is, is if if you don't get genuine inclusivity and di diversity in an organisation, it's the same people from same backgrounds um, who are coming through from you know private schools or Oxbridge or from you know, uh, and therefore they they've, they've had a certain upbringing. But the, the, the more you open up that profession, the more you will get people who you know, represent the wider society. And that, I think, is, is the key here. And I think that, you know, just drawing that, the, the, that, that modelling, role modelling, you know, we have a lot of conversations about that the importance of that can't be underestimated, you know, because we, we, we're looking at some really cool initiatives uh, led by some people in, in, in the sector to try and see what we can do to, to hit sort of the sort of 14 to 16 year olds so they can, you know, be attracted to the profession much earlier. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you, you can't be what you what you can't see, uh, right? And and yeah. I think oft, often, again, just in my experience, there's been with DNI initiatives, there's a lot of focus on recruitment and getting a more diverse group of people into the organisation, uh, and that's and that's great. But I think often that's to the detriment of thinking about what their lived experience is when they come into the organisation, and you can see that in some sectors where attrition levels are quite high. Uh, amongst underrepresented groups because it's all well and good saying you know we want to achieve whatever percentage mm -hmm. of people from underrepresented groups or whatever percentage of women in senior leadership positions or whatever, whatever it may be but if you just focus on that and getting people through the door without thinking about the wider culture and what it's like for them when they're there to make sure that it's not an alien environment to make sure that their needs are catered for and to make sure that they feel comfortable and 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 can perform at the highest possible level if you don't get that bit right then actually all your efforts around recruitment are are, are really you know undermined in uh, in our experience 
I think that's, that's such a fantastic point to raise. And I think, again, when you talk, so we talked about the ESG, and we find it fascinating. We've obviously the drive in the sports sector in particular, but more broadly, the importance of human rights, the social side uh, of you know, social governance and environmental. Uh, the heart of this is kind of like, okay, right, we've got this kind of the business side down now, the organisational side down, the structural. So we kind of agreed what that kind of looks like and how it should operate. And now it's a case of actually, how do you make people have a nice experience whilst they're at work? And I do think that's interesting that you mentioned that. It does seem, it's particularly on the DNI side, the diversity and inclusion side, it does seem that there's that evolution in terms of where there's been some success in terms of at least the, the, on the recruitment side. We definitely have friends, colleagues uh, who share experiences with us in which they highlight that as a huge problem. And so that seems like to be the next wave of where we could do better. Um, Manan, did you have any final questions before we wrap up? Um, well, Manan, do you want to do the sign off? <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you, Sohil. And thank you, Gurpreet, for uh, giving up your time for us today and speaking to us. I know you both are really busy in your roles at the law firm, but you've still given us your time. So thanks a lot. This is an issue which is really important to us at Law & Sport as well. And we're trying to do as much as we can uh, on this. And it's really great to see both of you in leadership positions in law uh, working on this issue. So thanks a lot. Thank you very much. And, yeah, thank you both. It's been uh, great to uh, to talk to you guys. Brilliant. Thank you, guys. Lovely to see you. And uh, yeah, keep up the great work as well. And I think half the battle, it seems, is to you know, keep the conversation going. So and thanks for organising, Manan. Brilliant. Have a hope wherever you are. Have a lovely rest of your day. And thanks for tuning in. If you liked it, do share it with other people as well, please. <laughs>